Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we've got a fever for cowbell. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, or you can all listen streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Can we sign up for a death panel even if we're not old? <laughs> well, you're, you see, now you're actually due to be um, exterminated much sooner than Jeremy or I, since you're, what, a good 20 years older than my, us? My palm clock is blinking uh, red, and, <laughs> red and black. That's a Logan's Run reference for nice, you younger yeah. listeners. Now, for, for those who are not listening in, in the U.S. and who haven't heard about what's going on here, our country, the to-do in Congress right now is health care reform. The Democrats want it. The Republicans don't see a need for it because apparently they have health care. <coughs> Jesus. <coughs> Euthanize them. Mm. Well, well we don't have shot. to get too much into the politics no, no. to see, though, how crazy the response of some people. Including Sarah Palin, Palin who has said that um, if Obama's health care plan were to go through, her son with Down syndrome would be killed. There's also talk of, this is my favorite rumor about the Obama health care plan, mandatory sex change operations. Oh, I, I haven't heard that one. Yep. I don't want to be a woman. Rachel Maddow was talking about that. I'm not sure how that would work. Are they going to change Rachel Maddow to a man? <laughs> I thought she, I thought she already was a man. But the big the big one is the uh, the deathers, as they're called. It's these, this group of people who are claiming that the health care plan as it is written, would force end-of-life counseling, which would help the government decide when and how elderly people are going to die. In the very extremist of cases, people are talking about how this is the government's plan to kill old people. Right, and we're, we're hitting this story several weeks late, but people have been flooding town hall meetings uh, that yes. the Democrats have been putting on and... and uh, uh, expressing their concerns would be too nice, too charitable of a way. Right. They're, they're drowning out actual debate on the issue and just screaming. Now, my favorite... Right. It's reached hysterical proportions. Yeah. It's, it's really absurd. Now, now, where do they get this idea that we're going to start having death panels to the, begin the march towards forced euthanasia? Yeah. The House version of the health care bill it would cover consultation fees for physicians who counsel their patients about end-of-life issues. The sessions would be purely voluntary, patient's discretion. You, you become a senior, you want to have end-of-life counseling, find out, you know, make funeral arrangements, make um, plans for, you know, if you're in a vegetative state, do you want to be kept on life support? Do not the, resuscitate. Yeah, exactly. The kinds of things... That I'm going to go out on a limb and say everyone should have, regardless of how old you are. We should all have living wills. Right. That whole Terry Schiavo thing could have been avoided. Exactly. So what the health care plan would offer is that it would pay for this 
end-of-life counseling. It would not make the end-of-life counseling mandatory. It's purely voluntary. And right. all it's saying is that and they would pay for this. Writing living wills comes into this somewhere. Yeah. They suggest that everyone write living wills. Again, purely patient's discretion. Well, and it's going to help the hospitals to eliminate wasteful procedures, keeping people exactly. hooked up to respirators they don't when they're brain alive, dead and all sorts of yeah. things. Uh, well, but um, what Jeremy said is sounds rational now, but it can be spun into conservatives' hands because as soon as you start to say the cost effectiveness, cost-benefit uh, payoffs for right. vegetative people, then they can pounce on that, which they did. Right. And, and this is the interesting part here to me. The New Republic did an article about this whole issue. Here's the fun wrinkle. The legislation that was introduced in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, HELP, the, the legislation there did propose mandatory end-of-life counseling. Okay, You turn 65, and if you don't get end-of-life counseling, then you don't get Medicare. This legislation was introduced by Johnny Isaacson. Anyone know what, what political party he's affiliated with? Uh, Republican. He is. He is a Republican. He is a Republican senator from Georgia who not only introduced the legislation for, for discretionary end-of-life counseling, but he wanted mandatory end-of-life counseling. I think you video of him if I'm not mistaken. In fact, you can, and we will post right. that on our website. You would website. think the pro-life people would want that as a safeguard. Absolutely. That, so they have documentation that says, just don't let me die no matter what. I'm terrified Even of dying. Even if I'm decapitated, yeah. please yes. keep my carcass intubated. Right. And That's right. In our religion, we don't believe in death. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that you know, if you don't do this this uh, counseling, then you don't get your well, Medicare Newt, benefits. Newt, so Newt Gingrich was arguing for this because Rush it's, Limbaugh it's did Rush advertisements Limbaugh advertised. for it. Yep, yep, for uh, for a service that would help you do these living wills yes. because they thought it was that important. It and it is that important. Now, should the government mandate it? I don't know, but that's not the proposed bill uh, coming out of the Help Committee. Actually, by the time it even came out of that committee, it was down to patient's choice which passed unanimously through that committee, which means all of the Republicans on that committee voted for this provision that advocates end-of-life counseling. So in other words, this isn't a principled disagreement, but they're trying to fuel hysteria within, yes. within their people. Now, how does this relate to the contents of our show, Re Reasonable Doubts? Uh, we did an episode a while back on bioethics where we talked yes. about euthanasia. Ron Lindsay was the one that we interviewed for that episode. We talked about how religious ideas can oftentimes derail very important topics in bioethics. Mm -hmm. Euthanasia and abortion are very strong cases of that. Stem cell research. Even when you're making reasonable claims, for some reason, the other side can whip up a lot of hysteria. And one can't really effectively argue for euthanasia without hearing these slippery slope arguments all the time. Well, if you allow anybody to take their life into their own hands, suddenly the government... And the government's going to do it for it's you. It's part of this, you know, this nightmarish world of atheist socialism coming in and dictating when everybody's going to live and die. I and blame the libertarians for this kind of hoopla. Sorry, DJ. Why do we find it impossible as human beings to have ordinary rational conversations about these topics right. without it degrading into moral panic? And screaming matches and, and all of that sort of thing. Why can't we just talk about life and death rationally? 
What this reminds me of is when, when, when people, when you see people getting so emotional about these issues where it becomes all emotional and, and non-rational, you know that there is something being cued there. There are some worldview that's being activated, mm-hmm. like the abortion debate, or those cue certain worldviews where people, without even a knowledge of the facts, and I can guarantee you that most of those death panel people in the town hall meetings have very little grasp of factual issues, th- oh, and yeah. they don't care. But what they're arguing against is a worldview that's activated by these cues. And what it, and what I think underlies this psychologically is it, certain people have are tripwired to become more ideologically conservative, uh, or it's not just certain people, but people in general are tripwired to become more ideologically conservative and, uh, and if you want to be political about it, Republican stands on issues when they have fear cues activated, and the fear of death is one of the primary ones. So the, one of the theories that I want to talk about for the This God Things Like You is uh, something that's called terror management theory. This is something that's been increasing it in stature in the past decade or so. Uh, but it's a, it's a systematized body of knowledge within psychology primarily uh, that, that says that it's not terrorist management, but that says that, Tur- that there's a reciprocal relationship between worldviews and our fear of our own mortality. Right, and this bears on more than just politics. This has very important things to say about religion and why people gravitate towards religion and what kind of religion they will practice. Because what's more of a worldview than a religious worldview? That's kind of an archetype of a worldview. But yeah, this is based on the writings of a guy named Ernest Ernst Becker who wrote a book called The The Denial of Death a couple decades ago. And he was Mm -hmm. more psychoanalytically based. But the thing that makes this stand out is, is that there's tons and tons of experimental evidence supporting terror management theory. And it goes like this. Everybody denies their own death and has a fear of mortality. And this is a primal, even unconscious... You mean everybody else. I'm not going to die. Classic example. Um, and, that, and that this can even go on, on an unconscious level. But what happens is that we keep that in check and maintain self-esteem to get through the day uh, by having worldviews that support our existence. So, you know, you, we deny immortality, not... Uh, sometimes literally by saying we're going to live forever as in religion, but sometimes figuratively. Uh, your worldview might say, if you're not religious, that you know, your career will live on uh, your children, uh, that there are certain things like right, your nationality, your patriotism, sure. My name values. will live on some way. For a liberal, yeah. it might be, yeah, the ACLU or something like that supports a general worldview that makes us think, oh, it's not so bad, you know, um, death won't... Uh, snuff out my life because these values live on. Yes. The things I stood for, the things I did in life will echo for eternity. The institutions I contributed to. Without that, we we take a hit in our self-esteem and we panic because we think all the stuff you do, all your strivings for immortality, it's just nothing. You're going to rot in the ground. So what this predicts is that there's a two-way street here. One is, is that uh, is that any threat to your worldview? If I say, if you're a creationist and I say evolution is true, or if, if you're an atheist and, and I say, you know, evolution is false, well, anything that, that threatens that worldview is going to lead to uh, increasing fears of mortality because that bulwark mm-hmm. that kept them in check is being disrupted. And so they've done experiments that show that your unconscious death fears uh, increase after a worldview threat. And then the other direction is huh. if I increase your your thoughts about death, they call this mortality salience. 
by having you, let's say, write an essay when I this happens when I die, or if right. you see something on the news like terrorists blow up the you know, 9/11 or something, right. that they, causes they prime it in very clever ways. Very De- clever. Dead ways. end signs, chalk outlines. Oh, bodies. really? Go okay. to go to Detroit. Yeah, the, the, these <laughs> these these mortality salience type things lead to a strengthening of your worldview as a compensation. It's a defensive reaction. So, for example, if I show you a film about 9/11 and I have earlier uh, you know your your scores on things like your support of patriotism and like support for Bush right. or whatever like that. After that mortality salience intervention, you become stronger in your worldview, which I think we saw we saw very clearly um, as our our country and our world reacted to nine eleven. Yeah, unfortunately, that was kind of a real world test of TMT. Yeah. Is that is that we. They've th- they had experiments that were priming 9-11 type things and showing that people became more conservative in their support for existing things. And it wasn't just a literal policy thing. So you might say, well, right. yeah, sure, if I see terrorists smashing planes in a building, I'm going to support Bush because he's getting the terrorists. It wasn't that. It was a generalized – if you prime people with the fear of death in general, it was a generalized support of more conservatism. Not just going mm. and getting the terrorists, yeah. but things like in-group favoritism – I found that really interesting because I remember – I think maybe somewhere around the Kerry-Bush election, I remember some of this data coming out about how after 9-11, even liberal people tended towards more conservatism. Yeah. But they linked fear of death to the willingness to follow some strong leader type. Mm-hmm. But what some of this uh, TMT research seems to be saying is is no, it's it's not just you're afraid for your death and you want to – find the protective leader, it's actually people's opinions, beliefs on abstract ideological yeah. matters. Those are what change. It's, it's not just the herd mentality getting behind a, a, some sort of powerful... And, and here's where it connects to conservatism and opinions on this issue, too. Uh, there's there's a uh, an influential social psychologist named John Jost who talks about ideological differences being... You know, there was a period of time where people thought that ideology was not real, that, that your liberalism or conservatism was just based on this or that issue. Sure. And there's like famous works in, in sociology like uh, I think it's Theodore Adorno wrote a book on authoritarianism that were poo-pooed for a while because they thought, well, you know, an authoritarian is it isn't some it's not like a personality trait. Well, actually there are... Turns out it is. Turns out conservatism and liberalism are essential type elements of your personality that color a variety of issues, not just one particular view on, let's say, immigration. But mm-hmm. what Joe's theories show is that is that uh, one of the primary predictors of conservatism and a view on a broad variety of conservative issues is fear, particularly fear of death, mm. that conservatives are more... Uh, liable to be um, to, to be riled up when you give them these mortality salience procedures. Uh, and that, as I mentioned before, you can turn liberals uh, on positions into conservative positions by threatening their mortality as well. Right. So there's some experiments that were showed, uh, for example, that um, the author is named Paul Nail, uh, the primary author, and what he did is that f- they, the subjects in the experiment were given a mortality salience threat right about their own death as opposed to write about dental pain or something that's neutral, non-death related. Right. And liberal students became, uh, on measures, became more conservative-like. They discriminated against gays more. Wow. Um, they, they became, uh, yeah, so you can actually turn a liberal into a conservative by stoking fears and anxieties about mortality. Which I think was something we saw in the 2004 election when, uh, whose book is, uh, John Ridge's book? 
Tom Ridge's book. The Homeland Security guy? Yeah, is coming right. out where Every he said... Every time they raised the threat level, Bush's approval ratings increased. Well, and, and they, they noticed They that bumped the threat level right. Um, right after the Democratic National Convention because Kerry had a big boost. Um, so they raised the threat level and he went right back down. No, no back, I'm not saying back, that, that, they, that this was some sort of conscious knowledge of social science, but I think that people like Karl Rove and the policymakers know oh, that I, when you freak people out about their safety yeah. uh, and, and uh, their kind of existential security, people support conservative policies. Mm-hmm. Not just go and get the terrorists, right. but things like uh, things like even you know immigration or tax cuts or things right. like that. Uh, on a broad variety of issues, threats and fear lead people to to shift more conservative. And now the other thing that's controversial about some of these theories that um, uh, is that because it implies in some way that uh, oh, are you saying that conservatives are somehow um, uh, scared. Joe's theory was criticized. Yeah, that George Will, actually, the conservative columnist, was like, you know, oh, here's another liberal psychologist who's trying to gin up support for just his own view. But I think that there's a substantial amount, even like of laboratory evidence. There's a study by a guy named Douglas Oxley that shows that conservatives in laboratory situations of fear, so like galvanic skin response, this is where, you know, they can measure your palm moisture or blink reflex, how okay. easily you startle. When people are given threatening images on a screen like like, you know, uh, somebody screaming or a spider on somebody's face. Conservatives have a higher physiological reaction to those things than liberals. So even on a physiological basis, and this is what, what causes a lot of people to, to be up in arms about this theory, but there's substantial evidence that on a physiological basis, conserve people with conservative views are more easily disrupted and scared of things wow. than liberals. Which, But do we know, are they more skittish? Shall we say because they're conservative? Are they conservative because they are more? Uh, that's a good point. I mean, th- that we can't say anything about the directionality of that relationship. Right. I think that's probably the next step in a lot of this research is to say, even like, is there a genetic thing that some people, if you're wired a certain way to, to want, and it's not just fear also, but it's like need for clear structure. And that's something that mm. fits in more with conservatism yeah. that a need for clear, simple answers that is related to reduction in fear. If my world is all boxed in neatly, I'm more likely to support conservative positions rather than sure. the complexity that's involved in liberal things. Some people might, in fact, be personality wired to be simplistic. Yeah, uh, Jost in the end of ideology, where he's citing a lot of this different research in different areas, he puts it as that conservatives tend to have underlying psychological needs for stability versus change, order versus complexity, familiarity versus novelty, conformity versus creativity. And loyalty versus rebellion, and this this held true for all sorts of things outside of the political realm altogether. They talked about aesthetic domains, people's judgments of of art and what type of art they prefer. Conservatism, they said, is associated with preferences for relatively simple, unambiguous, familiar stimuli, whether they are paintings, as long as they're not nude, <laughs> paintings, poems, or songs. Even, and I thought this was funny, <laughs> research on how tidy conservatives versus liberals keep their their bedrooms. Yeah, they went to the bedrooms and just really? did things like they looked at the neatness, tidiness, and then did an object count of just simply what objects were there. Were there you know, books, CDs, maps, and things like that? And 
Yeah, yeah. And what was Con- the outcome? Con- conservatives uh, had more organized living conditions, uh, tidier. Uh, if that's a measure of liberalism, I'm the most liberal person on the planet. Yeah, the, the, but, the liberals' rooms had things like a homogeneous, uh, I'm sorry, heterogeneous books and CDs, world music, things oh, like that okay, in their yep. bedrooms. They were messier, uh, whereas conservatives tend to have organizational supplies, things like you know stamps and organizers. Calendars and, calendars. and that sort of thing. Um but yeah, so what we're getting at is that there's this there are situational factors like we were talking about being being primed by fear and other things, but there seems to be something that is y- your own your temperament, your disposition. There may be something very biological about it. Yeah, to bring it back to what we talked about with the death panels and the medical issue, there are some mortality salience terror management theories that look at, you know, well, with religion, what happens with threats to that? I think I mentioned like the, the evolution creationism. Right. There are some studies where you have creationists read a threat to uh, cre- like an evolution Stephen Jay Gould article, and they become uh, more afraid of death. There's, there's actually some recent studies on things, everything ranging from like support for um, um, or, or lack of support for medical technology and life end of life things. So like you guys remember the, the case that's been recently about the, the family who doesn't believe in doctors and they let their kid die. Yes. That when you give fundamentalists a mortality salience induction, they become more supportive of fundamentalist views. And one of the experiments included lack of support for medical technology at end of life, mm-hmm. that they would, that they became more faith healing type biased under death threats than under the control condition. Um, and there are situations though, some people might point out, well, what, what Christianity and religion actually has good things too. Those are actually sometimes increased when those are made salient with the mortality prime. That is things like compassion. One of the studies gave the the mortality salience prime, but they also mixed it with things like Bible verses that were specifically compassion related. And the highly Bible-believing fundamentalists did become more compassionate. But you had to make explicit the religious material that was the good stuff, compassion-related, along with the death threats. I find this very interesting because it seems it's suggesting a more mundane explanation for for what we've observed quite a bit over the course of this show and stuff, is yeah. that religion is a powerful force for good and a powerful force for evil. Connecting it into this this fear of death, right? This this is the idea of terror management theory. If they are becoming more compassionate in some contexts or charitable when primed, it's the idea is that they're kind of shoring up their own worth, right? Yes. They're they're building up their self esteem. They're connecting to their to their worldview, and this is helping them to dispel some of these negative thoughts of their own mortality. But what's interesting is one of the things that that worked against that was reflecting on your animal nature. Mm-hmm. Um, studies said that where, where subjects were primed to think about, and I'm not exactly sure how the how it was set up to do that, but to to think of themselves as ordinary biological natural being, the threat of one's own mortality went way up, and people retreated again mm-hmm. back into these religious ideas. Yeah, so uh, that actually brings up another uh, thing about why t- uh, terror management theory explains why people hold to some of these things beyond all rationality and when you, 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 you debate with people. To them, what's at stake is not simply the evidence of a particular issue. It's not just an argument. It's, it's when you look at things that, yeah. that uh, of their own existential support. I mean, think about that. If you puncture a hole in that worldview, that's you've lost everything uh, and so that's why some people cling so tightly to this is because it's it's scaring them in their own like if this is false oh my god my entire worldview is threatened and, and that's what we're seeing at these I'm town hall die. meetings where people are not even letting 
the the other opinion be heard because that could you know this idea of oh my god socialized medicine that punctures at at one of their core beliefs and that becomes a very real threat to them mm-hmm. um so they they drown out all conversation they're not willing to come to the table and have a discussion because that's it, for them, it's it's an attack. Yeah, they see they see babies and 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 and, and, you and know, apple pie and, and, and grandma and baseball. Those things are metaphors for an entire worldview, yeah. not just a policy issue of page four hundred of the healthcare bill. Right. So just as it can provoke very good behavior, at the very same time, the same force can provoke very bad behavior, and this includes some of these studies looked at reactions to people in the out group. So, for example, priming Christians with, you know, thoughts of their own mortality, suddenly their attitudes towards other Christians became more favorable, Mm -hmm. and their viewpoint towards anyone who did not hold their worldview became more hostile. Yeah, so they had uh, them evaluate a Christian and a Jewish subject for personality traits, and yeah, the mortality salience primed Christians— thought the other Christian was nicer after the mortality seance relative to the control condition. Uh, they uh, they thought the Jew in the experiment was not as nice. So it, it caused them to circle the wagons to favor their own in-group under conditions of mortality salience. And, and by the way, I sh- we should mention too, liberals and non-religious people are equally prone to these things. It's just right. that our worldviews are different. So right. uh, under the worldview threat, liberals become more liberal and that they become more dug into yeah. positions of things like, you know, the Bill of Rights is the best thing ever. You know, ACLU is great. Charles Darwin's a god. That, that you can, everybody is prone to mortality salience. Right. At best, what we can hope for in this theory is to, is to, promote a more awareness that somebody, hey, you know, when you when you feel these threats, what you're reacting to is an emotional reaction based upon some of your some of your very primal needs to have immortality. Uh, it's not, you know, and try to encourage people to be to, to step back and to think about things more rationally. Getting back to how it relates to religion, though, a lot of these terror management theorists are claiming that this is the primary function of religion. In their mind, the primary psychological function of religion is this: is this the root cause of religion? Well, that was that and, was a Freudian view. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Freud thought too that the, the the anxiety was everything, but that the primal anxiety was you're going to die, you're going to die, and you're an animal. And so this this is what religion does: is it gives us a view of the afterlife to give us means of transcending death, to give us that hope. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, us secularists, uh, we may still look to those other symbolic means of immortality, participating in your community, creative efforts, investing in one's family and romantic relationships. We try to do the same thing. But they, from their worldview, have that tangible, literal immortality that they are looking for and that these these worldviews provide that. Yeah, I think that's the dangerous thing is not having, uh, as we said, everybody has worldviews. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the symbolic ones, though, I think are less less reactive to threat because they're more malleable. If you want to think of the worldviews as a kind of a flexible like a mm-hmm. container to keep those mortality fears in check, the more rigid it is, the more apt it is to be defended harshly because it's either or so you know it's right. it's very so i guess in some sense it's better uh, we always criticize religion some forms of liberal religion for being so symbolic that they're unfalsifiable but i think in some ways that's actually an advantage uh, the, the right. problem is people that have such rigid worldviews where they're easily they easily stoke the person's defense because they are 
uh, so rigid. You know, the earth was created in six literal days, 10,000 years ago, whatever like yeah. that. Those people become more reactive and actually it's the, uh, and, and that's the more dangerous element of religion is because it promotes, it promotes a form of worldview that is, that is rigid as opposed to flexible worldviews like symbolic immortality. Mm-hmm. One of the critiques that came up in my mind, though, is that if religion exists because it's going to help us cope with death and cope with anxiety towards our own immortality, religion doesn't always do that very effectively. And, and historically and even culturally, uh, different, different regions of the world, different religions there's not always a big emphasis on the afterlife. There's not always afterlives that are ones that we would like to get from these religions. Take the um, uh, the Homeric Greek afterlife, for example, where you go to Hades and you're a shade and you float around and are miserable but not necessarily suffering. Yeah, yeah. That, or that or the, really... the the Mayan the Mayan underworld. Uh, what was that? Zabalba is this terrifying horrible place and everybody even even, even the, the elites good, yeah. even even the elites in the society uh, were expected to go to this underworld <laughs> and then there's a lot of yeah sure religion may calm our anxieties but there's sometimes they're calming anxieties that the religion itself has created so if you believe in <laughs> in witchcraft or demons and hell well then yeah I'm countering witchcraft by all these different rituals. I, I offer a heaven to deal with the fear of hell. Right. I'm oh, yeah. counting on angels to deal with demons. I sure. mean, it's it's solving a problem that it created. And that's one of Boyer's criticisms of, of a lot of the religion as coping thing is that in many ways it can arouse anxiety as much as it allays. But yeah. I think the, the terror management theory response to that is, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be comforting to, to serve the function of that of a worldview, what it has to be is that provides an explanation, whatever the explanation has to be. It's comforting to have an explanation, As opposed not to necessarily a comforting explanation. Right, this would kind yeah. of explain the measures of satisfaction of life. It tended to be that people on the extremes of, uh, you know, people who are certain atheists and people who have certainty in their religious beliefs, they both reported better life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. than those who are undecided. It's all about certainty. You know, the, yeah. the, it's the certainty. Anything's the better than conviction. randomness. So the, okay. the terror management theory would probably say that what's truly terrifying is not the possibility that I could go to hell because very few people believe they're going to go to hell or even that it's kind of like a Everyone dark bus stop. you're going to go to hell. Yeah, yeah. but the, the terrifying thing would be that there's no meaning whatsoever and it's just right. random. You die and there's nothing. Your life is extinguished. Everyone's going to forget about you. That is worse than thinking that maybe some people might go to hell. That's why we have such a hard time making our case made a lot of the time is because we have to deal with that reality. That well, what people say well, usually after you say you're an atheist is that they say, well, what meaning would there be to life? Exactly. And, and that's terrifying to people. Yeah. It's, it's above and beyond just say, well, you're going to get poked with hot sticks in, in, in a fire forever. But what they think is that there's no, there's no system then of appropriate rewards and punishments at right. all for anybody. Right. There's no justice. This would even, if it, even if it's a, a God who is kind of like, you know, a, a particularly nasty God and has a lot of rules, sure. at least they're rules. At least they know. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Whereas you liberals don't have any rules. That's right. Everything's good. It would probably be a mistake then to say that religion then evolved or was adaptive or the reason why it exists is to provide us comfort from the fear of death. Uh, It might though, it might explain kind of the evolution of different religious beliefs because if you had views of the afterlife competing with one another, one that was very grim and didn't give any sort of satisfaction, 
and one that was a more positive notion that could uh, alleviate anxiety or something like that, perhaps there would be a competitive edge. I don't know. That's speculation, but that's one hmm. that might be or it's just a byproduct of, of a creature that has developed enough of a cortex to say, I'm, oh, my God, I'm going to die someday, and I need to make sense of how this could be. Sure. It might just be a byproduct of knowing, of having a knowledge of your own mortality leads to uh, shoring up that esteem somehow. My d- cat might not worry about, you know, about shoring up worldviews because the cat doesn't ever have a perception Concept that it's going to die. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Well, we're going we're gonna to return to a segment we haven't done in a while, Skeptic Sunday School. Sweet. For this Skeptic Sunday School, we're going to continue on the death theme and look at how uh, Judaism and their views of the afterlife have evolved over time. We have this notion that there's a heaven, that's for good people, there's this hell where bad people go, and that is... Sometimes purgatory or limbo, depending on what point you were a Catholic. Right. Limbo's been eliminated, by the way. Oh. They got rid of it. That's too bad. Don't know where all those babies went, but... Not there anymore. Your moral conduct usually here in this life is what's going to determine where you end up, your position in the afterlife. And a lot of us just take this as, you know, common sense. This is the Judeo-Christian view of, of the afterlife. Well, mm. it's, it's really not. If you look really early in Judaism, you're going to see that the, the Hebrew Bible, especially in the Torah, doesn't really concern itself much with an afterlife at all. No. People were much more focused on, you know, the context of this life, the survival of the group. Remember, the first covenant between Abraham and God is a promise for descendants and a promise for land. It doesn't say anything about eternal life. Abraham is worried because he's not going to have any descendants to give to the world. Uh, And so your immortality was what we would say, you know, those symbolic routes of immortality. Mm -hmm. Same with God's covenant. You know, why do you obey? Is it because you don't want to go to hell, because you want to go to heaven? No, the the punishments and the blessings that would come from either not following the covenant or following them, right. those are like blessings. Like the ground opening yeah. up and swallowing you is a, is a good punishment. These are blessings and curses in this life. Right. Your crops, being yes. attacked by others, the success of your kingdom. Your offspring as as possessions, you know. Do you have offspring? Will they take care of things? Will they die? Where you do get an afterlife that's mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, it's the underworld, Sheol. This is a land of the dead where all mortals go. Sheol is very much like you said, like the like kind of the Greek Hades. Yeah. Yes, it's this kind of shadowy underworld. People do continue to exist in it, but it's this nebulous yeah. existence. You wouldn't even really identify it as, as a human. Right. It's like a New York subway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like, like like in the Odyssey when Odysseus goes into the underworld and he has to offer up blood and then the the various people crawl out of the, the sea. And it's only after they've they've been given that small thing that they, they really they get some personality back. Yeah, yeah, otherwise they're just these, these shades that are floating along. And you can see this all throughout the attitudes in the Bible. Oftentimes, talk of Sheol... It's hard to tell whether or not they really even believe this is an afterlife or if this is annihilation. They'll talk about Sheol in the underworld, and then they'll talk about, you know, just not existing almost in the same breath. A great example of that is in Job 14. I'm I'm not going to read it here. I was going to say, Job would be the place to find the afterlife because there's all this conversation in, in heaven. 
Yeah, Job in Job 14, you see his view, and it's pretty much that when people die, people die. Yeah. He, he talks about Sheol as being some sort of a comfort, but it's kind of in the same way that death would be a comfort for anybody who's going through a lot of misery. It's it's not like it's a blissful heaven. Right. And he, he, com- he contemplates an afterlife. He asks, you know, once mortals die, will they ever return to life? And he kind of thinks, imagines what this would be like. But he seems really dismissive of the idea and just kind of puts it off. And in Ecclesiastes, you get the same thing. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, uh, chapter 9, verses 7 uh, through 10. Uh, this is that famous, you know, eat, drink, and be merry passage. Uh, Go, eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart. And then down to verse 10. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. There's just... There's nothing. There's no... It's a void. Yeah, there's no... It seems there's no experiential life. It's the Um, kind of afterlife that I believe in. And what I found was really interesting and kind of the reason why I wanted to bring this up is there doesn't seem to be God there either. In Psalm 6-5, and you can find other verses that kind of echo the same notion, Psalm 6-5, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? Christian apologists are fond of claiming, well, hell is torment because it's separation of God. Well, right. why is it separation of God is, is the interesting question. Is it because what would seem from the context of some of these verses, well, if if you're basically annihilated, you have no mental life, you can't experience God anyways. So so what's the point? But there might actually be a different reason too. Sheol is not just the underworld, but it's also a goddess. It's a goddess in the Canaanite pantheon. Really? As we've discussed many times previously on the show. I thought from the she title, there might be a female there. So. Mm, yes. The, the Canaanite religion and... Hebrew religion was very closely fused. I, I think what you see in the Old Testament is mostly this this tradition, this uh, exclusive worship of Yahweh, these people trying to break away from all their neighboring religions. Right. But yeah, Sheol is a goddess in the Canaanite pantheon. It's not any different than Hades. Hades is both the god of the underworld and it's the realm right. of the underworld. And hell in uh, Norse mythology, H-E-L. And we know that Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they they make a sin out of divination, necromancy, any right. kind of attempt to communicate with the dead. With the dead. Mm-hmm. Which means this was this was a Canaanite practice in the time. People were people did believe in some sort of an afterlife where they may be able to contact these people, their family members and other things, and the cult of Yahweh saw it necessary to purify their religion to prevent people from doing this. So why do they why is the afterlife dangerous? Why is God why is his presence not there? If you think about it, the early Jews as we've pointed out previously too, they're henotheists. They're not monotheists right. yet. They believe there's many gods, they are just exclusively worshiping one as their own. And we've also discussed about, you know, areas where once a Jew leaves the territory of the Holy Land, you know, God isn't protecting them anymore. Right. God seems to be powerless in territories that are outside of his own. And against anyone who has an iron chariot. Yeah, well, that's one too. Yeah. Yahweh is a mountain god. He's a sky deity. His abode is heaven. So hell is basically out of his territory. So It's a no-fly zone for Yahweh. You know, with all these things, it's really hard to piece together exactly how these ideas form, but it seems very probable to me 
Why aren't the very early Jews all that concerned about an, an afterlife? Why is Sheol this bleak place? Because it's, it's out of their God's control. Mm-hmm. It's not his realm. And that's not what they're concerning themselves with. Now, you do get this changing, and what's interesting is it seems to happen in step. Tim Callahan has pointed this out and I think makes a pretty persuasive case for it. It's as the Jews become more monotheistic Mm -hmm. that there's a a series of beliefs that has to follow. As they start worshiping God more exclusively and thinking he's the God of all and not just over their territory, suddenly the problem of evil becomes more difficult for them. So God isn't as capricious anymore, Yahweh starts becoming more moral, and you need somebody as a source for sin. You start getting Satan. Well, some of the same things happen with their view of the afterlife, too. As they continue towards a more monotheistic belief, you get popping up. First, it it comes up in kind of Jewish folklore, this idea of Abraham's bosom. Strange name, but if you think about it, you hold a child to your chest, you know, in comforting... uh, that there's some sort of area in Sheol that is the area of the the righteous dead. Hmm. Um, you get this in in the Apocrypha too. Uh, also, uh, interestingly enough, this also happens with um, the Greek view of the afterlife as it develops over time. You start to get these right. different areas in Hades, some reserved for for better people, business class versus right. coach. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the book of Enoch is a is it's an apocryphal book, but it starts articulating, yeah, that there might be different regions, different compartments for different people. Uh, and the early church fathers actually looked at this idea that the Abraham's bosom, which Jesus talked about in his parable with Lazarus and the rich man who goes down. Right. So early Christians most likely believed this. Uh, the early church fathers start talking about this as, you know, this is where the idea of limbo comes from. They're they're trying to understand the Jewish concept of Sheol and their kind of in their worldview, and they think, well, okay, this is this is where righteous Jews hung out until the time of Jesus' resurrection, so they could be saved and go to heaven. How low can you go? Limbo. That's a oh, yeah. stick with a. It's a hell limbo. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of other stuff with with Jewish views towards uh, the resurrection of the dead, sometimes right. bodily, which which we won't go into. But uh, kind of the the end conclusion then is is like many other primal religions, Judaism did not start off with a very appealing afterlife, but it developed the need to, as their views of God became more ex- abstract, as the world had to become a righteous place that didn't have suffering as there was a need for more justice this is how this view of hell for the bad heaven for the good and the afterlife started developing i guess just as a final note i was thinking maybe we should wax eloquent you know what is the humanist view of death uh, mm. and and i was trying to think you know if we talk about how how do we relate to our own mortality and everything else and it just seemed to me like, you know, there really wasn't enough to talk about because you're once you're dead, you're dead. You're dead. Our, the focus of humanism is on this life. Well, I found an interesting fact in reading about this. Bart Ehrman brought this to my attention uh, in one of his books. There was uh, uh, many people in the ancient Greco-Roman world simply didn't have any need for an afterlife. They didn't believe it. And you can tell this one line of evidence is by reading their tombstone inscriptions. Hmm. 
one of the very prevalent tombstone inscriptions was an acronym, kind of like we would have rest in peace, RIP, on these tombstones. But their phrase was, I was not, I am not, I care not, inscribed on a lot of these these tombstones, which I I thought was kind of cool. That basic recognition, you know, there's there's really no need to fear death. You've not existed previously. Right. And when you and cease to exist again, you're not going to have pain. You're not going to be bothered by it. Yeah. I feel like you had, had mentioned to me before, Jeremy, and maybe not, that hell, this this idea of hell was believed to be an actual, like, place where they burned bodies yeah in jerusalem they had like a garbage trash dump thing that's where the right that's where the term comes from yeah they were relating it to yeah these burning garbage dumps Uh, it's kind of like metaphorical because of the stench of the dead bodies and the kind of the smell and the sulfurous thing that kind of got woven into and that's where the fires of hell come into and that's that's how you get that that idea Hmm. in detroit they have the trash incinerator so that's their view of hell is the big chimney there yeah I I always like uh, uh, Detroit's my view of hell. Yeah, in general, I like. Um, oh, it's not so bad. Uh, it's not so bad. They're cutting down street lamps to salvage them for scrap metal. Oh There's God. a T-shirt that said Detroit, where the weak are killed and eaten. I I like all of these um, um, skeptic Sunday school pieces because it's like I, I get to watch religions grow like a chia pet. It's like you put the seeds on and water it, and then you watch all of the things add on to it. And it's, it's fascinating to me. So th- thank you for that, Jeremy. You're welcome. Okay, and now another edition of Stranger Than Fiction. The God Tornado Storm. This story comes to us from Minnesota's Public Radio. Here's what happened. In Minneapolis, a Lutheran church had part of its steeple knocked off by a tornado, an unexpected tornado, which, as most people will tell you, most tornadoes are unexpected. (laughs) Um, We got one that's going to show up about 4 (laughs) o'clock. Yeah. (laughs) We expect it any minute now. So um, uh, a Baptist preacher in Minneapolis, believes that this freak tornado that struck the um, Evangelical Lutheran Church was the result of the Lutherans um, taking up the issues of gays at the pulpit. Uh, He says, uh, John Piper, Baptist preacher in Minneapolis, says, the tornado in Minneapolis was a gentle, gentle, uh, but firm warning to the ELCA and all of us. Turn from the approval of sin. Turn from the promotion of behaviors that lead to destruction. Reaffirm the great Lutheran heritage of allegiance to the truth and authority of Scripture. Turn back from distorting the grace of God into sensuality. Rejoice in the pardon of the cross of Christ and its power to transform left and right wing sinners. You're making me a little nervous. And you're... Becoming a little more Irish. What's the yeah, deal? Yeah, he sounded well, more like yeah. Minneapolis. I don't. I don't do a. I guess I could do can't my. You do, can't I you mean, read it like Garrison Keillor? He also the, said, um, and you know, as, he could he could skip the long protracted fire and brimstone stuff. Why don't they just put that on our marquee? You, yeah. you know the, You know how they have the. They put their little phrases out on on the board out in front of the church. Yeah. They could just have, go to our church. 
God didn't hit us God with the tornado. Turn. No, yeah. lightning free. The Baptist Church, lightning free since <laughs> yeah. 1920. They give a day count. <laughs> now, 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 Piper here offers as proof of his argument here, on a day when no severe weather was predicted or expected, a tornado forms, baffling the weather experts, most saying they've never seen anything like it. A tornado? A tornado that, that warm front of air reaching a cool front of air starting a tornado? It's Whatever. Nice I'm going to have to be skeptical of the skeptics. Clearly God wanted to fight against the Lutherans. Yeah. And the tornado, it should be noted, did very little damage. There's a picture here. And, and as you can see, like, the cross got knocked off the top of the steeple. I mean, there's there's almost no damage. But still, that is a reminder to you those know, Lutherans out there. I always to do a study that by denomination, seeing that the churches that have all collapsed, burnt, or get hit by lightning, and see if there's like a pattern by denomination oh, so sure. that I can, we could determine from God's point of view Who which God likes ones the he most. favors or not. You know, Because I don't have the stats at hand here, but I'm willing to say that uh, the ones in Kansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska are severely targeted by the deities yeah, in absolutely. terms of weather Regardless. systems, Texas Panhandle. You know, if, he if really a doesn't a like people that live in those Tornado had planes. struck a, a church in, I don't know, where's a place that doesn't usually get hit by a tornado. Or if a hurricane well, well, had struck an Oklahoma church. That's a stronger argument. The, you know, what about the United Church of Christ? They're all gay-friendly with their things. Yeah. Where's their headquarters, yeah. and how come they're not being devastated by a tornado? Yeah, what would be convincing is if they touched down and it was the abortion clinic, <laughs> uh, you know, the gay bar, and the church that all got hit God has at the a same joystick. time. He's turning a wheel right, a little to the right. Well, that yeah, was that, Then we would have the fine-tuning from... Uh, <laughs> That was one of my favorite things about Hurricane Katrina, which, by the way, we're coming up on two years now, I think. Uh-huh. Um, is um, I want to hear what the that. great thing about no, Katrina no, no, was. no. There was a a I think it was an old jazz man who was interviewed, and because all these people were talking, Pat Robertson, you know, right. this is God's vengeance, and he said, "Well, if this was God's vengeance." His aim was off. He missed the red light district. <laughs> yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, he missed or the French Quarter. The French Quarter was up on you know, high yeah, high ground. So the French Quarter was fine. Um, he doesn't like poor Pentecostal black people living in the Ninth Ward. Yeah, exactly. But as far as the subject of you know local churches attacking each other, I mean, it's great because they keep their attention off of us. The, sure. The more they fight against, because usually each other. they're just complaining about bus campaigns or billboards yeah. that we're putting up. But did you see these uh, the church sign wars over? I was going to bring that up. We'll, we'll post it online. Uh, 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 my newly minted wife just uh, sent this to me, too, the um, Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church. So it's a Presbyterian Church, and, and they're the ones who start this thing, right? Well, yeah, the Catholics um, put on their sign, all dogs go to heaven. Okay. Then the Presbyterians shoot back with, only humans go to heaven, read the Bible. Then the Catholics say, God loves all his creatures, dogs included. So the Presbyterians shoot back with, Dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. And by the way, this is this is actually real. This is not because there are fake church sign generators online, and that right, this, right. this is real. This, this is, has these been are right across the street from one another. Yes. They're they're going. Motorists can see this debate developing. Did roving bands of partisans go out and try to burn down the other sign? <laughs> then the Catholics write back with Catholic dogs go to heaven. Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor. <laughs> <laughs> that the Presbyterians write, converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. They're running out of room on the signs uh, with the... Yeah, oh, that, that one's, that's a full sign right there. This, this is probably my favorite. The Catholics shoot back with, free dog souls with conversion. 
<laughs> and then the Presbyterians write, dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. And then the Catholics finish it with, all rocks go to heaven. <laughs> you know, I'd have to say, I never thought I'd say this, but I'm on the Catholic side. On this <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Made, the Presbyterians are being rather They had, they had much and, more of a the, sense of humor yeah, about the The Presbyterians thing. are really stuck up about the whole thing, <laughs> but all rocks go to heaven. Just, um, yeah, that was great. That makes my day. Did, did they call St. Francis a sissy? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, and the Presbyterians saying, dogs are animals. Uh, as opposed to humans, which are what? Okay. But well, I, I'm all for churches arguing with each other like this. It's, it's good entertainment for the rest of us. And now to wrap up another entry into the Gospel of Doubt. My harbingers of non-theism were the standard horsemen of the personal epistemological apocalypse, consisting of failed theodicy, farcical arguments for God, and internal contradictions of divine revelation. Beyond that, these were my waypoints to unbelief. I was Catholic when I was interviewed for confirmation, but barely. If the non-Trinitarians were removed from church pews, mass would fit in a Dairy Queen. I asked how knowledge could lead to man's fall, to which I was told it was knowledge of evil. I could not worship a god that forbade curiosity. I then talked to a friend in the clergy and asked, which version of Genesis is true? He replied, all of them, with no mental gymnastics. I could not worship a god that forbade reason. Finally was the person asking me, do you believe in a higher power, to which I finally snapped, what does that mean? The noisy silence that followed merely made men cattle. I could not worship a god that forbade compassion. I sometimes miss the false comfort of an eternity with omnibenevolence, but in living a temporary life in a temporary universe, I think I found an alternative reality, and the humanity it contains. And that's going to do it for us this week. In the meantime, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Zazzle slash Doubtcast. Make sure you keep sending in your comments, questions, and suggestions to doubtcast at gmail.com. And tune in next time for more of your skeptical guide to religion here on Reasonable Doubts. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.